Genesis chapter 3, um, which we've been looking at for a few, a few weeks while I've been preaching. Um, this could be the last one. I don't know. We'll see. But if you've not got a Bible and you'd like to borrow one, um, then there are some available at the back. Um, someone's just um, got one, so feel free to help yourself. Or Actually, there's a couple of people going to possibly hand them out, maybe? Does anyone want one, anyway? No one wants one, anyway. So you don't need to bother. <laughs> yeah, there's one there. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, the words will appear on the screen behind me, anyway. So, yeah, we've spent several weeks looking at this, at this chapter of Genesis, and uh, We've focused in on a few different things. We've looked at what it says about death, and we've looked about, uh, for a few weeks actually, what it says about relationships between men and uh, women. And um, last week actually, I don't know if he, he said it here, he certainly said it in the afternoon congregation, Arnold was looking at this word therefore in Romans chapter 5, and uh, he said, you know, some people, Martin Lloyd-Jones think, has said it is possibly the most important word in the Bible. Um, well, I would argue that this chapter in the Bible is possibly one of the, if not the most important chapters in the Bible. Because if we ignore this chapter in Genesis, um, or don't take it seriously, we'll never actually understand, um, or begin to understand, why the world is as, his, as it is. Um, the New Testament writers certainly took it very seriously, and there was many references back to it. And um, this chapter tells us all about evil in the world and how sin has come in, how sin's in our own hearts, how there's pride and rebellion there against God's holy rule, um, and even begins to tell us what God has begun to do, uh, began to do about it, and has continued to do about it. Um, so we're going to read that, and we're going to we're going to just focus in on on uh, on this whole theme. Today, So uh, we'll, read, we'll read the whole chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you mustn't eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you mustn't touch it or you'll die. You'll not surely die, said the serpent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her also, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I commanded you, you mustn't eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and for to dust you will return. 
Adam named his wife Eve because she became the mother, she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He mustn't be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, we're going to look at, at, at this passage here. And um, we'll see actually in this whole passage, in these, this whole first few books, uh, chapters of Genesis, that God is in control right from the start. We might think, well, that's a bit strange. He, he doesn't really look to be very much in control in this passage. But I'm going to point out and, and show that he is very much in control all the way through this. I mean, it's fairly obvious that God is in control in the first couple of chapters of Genesis because right from the start, um, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And all the way through, it's got the commands of God as he's creating the world where he says, let this happen, and then there was. Uh, God's let there be light, and there was light. What God says happens. God is in control. And then right through into Genesis chapter 2, you see it was God who decided what work Adam should have. It says uh, in chapter 2 and verse 15, the Lord God made the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That was his role. God didn't give Adam an option. He wasn't some sort of celestial careers advisor that was going to say, now what is it you fancy doing, Adam? You know, well, you, can, you can work in the garden or you can maybe be a builder. Why don't you build some houses or, or whatever you fancy? Now, that was his role. God made the decision. Later on in that, uh, in that chapter, in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's good, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Adam didn't come and ask, oh, I'm a bit lonely here, God, you know. Um, but God decided, oh, I, I'm going to make a helper for Adam. I'm going to make a, a wife for him. He even did it while Adam was asleep. Adam didn't have any part in it. He went to bed a single man, and he woke up married. It's not normally what you'd re- recommend to people, but that's what Adam did. Um, but, but it was God who made that decision. Um, and in, in, also in chapter 2, in verse 16, it was, it was God who set forth the prohibition from eating from the tree. He said, um, uh, you know, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So it was God who decides what is good and what is evil. God who decides what's right and proper and what is is out of bounds. Um, That's what good and evil is. There's many debates about, well, what is good? How do you know what is right? How do you know what is, what is true? How do you know what is good? And how do you know what is evil? Well, the truth is that what God says is good, is good. And what God says is evil, is evil. That's how you decide. That's how you know. What God says is sin, is sin. We're not given the choice ever to decide what is right and wrong. We're not given that option God is the moral standard. He is the standard of all moral good. He is the source of all moral absolutes. 
there's no way we can know outside of God. Many philosoph- if you've ever studied any sort of philosophy at school or university, you will know many, many people have, have just tried to deal with this question of what is good, what is evil, what should you do in these situations, what, what's right, what is wrong. And um, today, I guess, many people just decide what is right and wrong by, by what the majority think. You know, it's almost the public vote. It's, it's like, you know, people decide who's a good singer or not, by, or who's a good dancer by voting. Well, we, we now can decide what's right or wrong by, by what the majority think. Um, and we all want personal choice, and we all want to be in control of our own lives. And, and the only absolute in life, probably, is tolerance of other people. Um, but it's, it's folly. It's absolute folly. Isaiah... Um, in chapter 5 and verse 20, he illustrates that. He explains how foolish it is. We find Isaiah in chapter 5. In verse 20, he says, He says, Woe to those who call good, sorry, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, who deny justice to the innocent. And he says, therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spurn the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Man, that's stark, isn't it? That's powerful stuff. It's saying, how foolish are we when we decide that we can call the shots when we can decide what is right and wrong, when we can say, oh, it's all right, we can do this, we can go out and heroes at drinking wine, oh, I went out last night, I got drunk, boasting about it. God says, how foolish you are. Woe to you. Woe to you who think that you are clever in your own eyes. Woe to you who decide that you are going to make a virtue out of something that is evil, that is sin. Woe to you. It's a stark warning. God is the one who decides. God is the one who is in control. We, we can come up with our own ideas, but, but this is the truth. We are on a path to destruction. Chris Rear, a long time ago, said, we're on a road to hell. This is the road to hell. It is. That is the road to hell. So God's in charge. But what about in Genesis 3 then, this passage that we read though? Because we think, well, God doesn't seem to be in charge here. You know, it looks like the serpent could be in charge. Or even Adam and Eve are making a pretty good bid to be in control, be in charge. Well, um, the serpent, as we've seen, or the devil, as we've explained uh, previously, um, certainly tries to stake his claim. He challenges what God has said. And he gets Eve to to begin to see God as the enemy and restrictor of, of freedoms. Did God really say... You mustn't eat from any tree in the garden. Why would God say that? And, well, yeah, we mustn't eat from the tree. and We mustn't even touch it. She's, she's going even further. 
no, we, we mustn't. She's be- beginning to see God, not as some gracious giver of good things, but as, oh, there's a prohibition. He's stopping us. He's spoiling our fun. He's spoiling what it is. He's denying some sort of pleasure to us. That's what the enemy tries to get us to see God is, is all the time. You know, you talk to people who don't know God, one of their main concerns is, well, God will just stop me having fun. God will stop me enjoying my life. And that's what the enemy has always said, right from here. God is out to curb your fun. God is out to stop your freedom, to deny you pleasure. And, and it worked. It worked. His, the serpent's tactics and temptation worked because Eve and Adam ate of the fruit. They saw that they wanted some pleasure that God hadn't given them. And, that, and that's what we're like today, isn't it? We blame God in society. We blame God when things go wrong in our life. We say God is holding us back from getting what we want. God is holding us back from our, from our, our, our sexual freedom. So we, we're going to sleep with who we want. Thank you very much. I don't want God telling me what to do. Our social freedom, we'll do whatever we want to do. Even in science, well, we'll use whatever we want to, 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 to advance science. Advance the causes of our own knowledge, of our own, uh, we, we, our own quest to be like God. So we'll do whatever it takes. And it doesn't really matter if, if the sanctity of life is ignored, because we're making the decisions here. And it's scientific progress. You know, these, these religions and, and, and Christians and God, they're just holding people back from fulfilling their own potential. What is that own potential? You will be like God's. That's what we want. We want to be like God's. And the devil tells us we have got every right to do it. You've got every right to go for it. If God hasn't given you a husband or a wife, then you have got a right to go and find one for yourself. Even if it's outside of God. Even if, 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 it, if, it's, if, if it's not someone who, who God is bringing into your life. You just go and find your own. Sort your own life out. If God hasn't given us the money that we deserve, then we can go and get it. Why should, we, why should we just make do with what we've got? If God hasn't given us a good sex life, then we'll go out and get one. If he's not given us that with, in the situation we're in, well, we'll go and find it somewhere else. If God hasn't given us the highs that we, that we can experience in life, well, let's go out and get them. Let's go out and get fine things for ourselves. Because after all, we're good people, aren't we? What's wrong with us? We're good people. We, can, we deserve these things. We don't need God telling us. That's what our lives are like so often in the world. We just think we can get things ourselves. God's kindness and provision and the huge freedoms he gives us, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. They're forgotten. They're forgotten because all we think about is, well, what is God stopping us from doing? What is it that we can get that God isn't giving us? So we can be resentful of God and we can be angry with him and we'll think, well, we'll go and sort it out ourselves. How proud and arrogant are we to think that we know better than God? You know, the enemy will sideline God. The whole of this conversation that the serpent is having with Adam and Eve, God's out of it. God is talked about in a negative way. God isn't consulted. God isn't asked. God isn't brought into it. It's all about, oh, God's saying this. Come on, you can do it yourself. God is sidelined. We often sideline God. 
We can do it, we can do it even in the churches. Because, because we, we, think, we think, oh, well, we're okay. Well, we're Christians. This is all, this is all very good, listening to, listening to what other people do. No, we sideline God often as well. We often decide that we know better. Even in churches. We can decide how we think things should be. In, and, and, and we appeal to human reason and logic. So many churches are, be, are being run, and it's a temptation. And it's, not a temp, it's a temptation we're not immune from. But many churches are imi- increasingly being run in the way which human logic tells us will attract people. So, for example, we don't want too many gifts of the Spirit in the meetings. We don't really want people speaking in tongues. But this is what, I'm not actually saying this is what we don't want, just in case you... <laughs> But people will say, oh no, we, you know, if we have people prophesying and speaking in tongues and, and you know, weird things like that and people shaking and, and maybe, maybe falling over or, or, or demons being cast out or, or, or things like that that we see in the Bible, well, people are going to think we're, we're weird. And people are going to come in and think, I don't want anything to do with that. So we'll make sure that that doesn't happen in our meetings. And people aren't really going to want to sit for quite a while and listen to someone preaching. Because that's not how, how, people, how people learn these days. So, um, you know, we'll maybe have some discussions. We'll maybe get into just discussion groups and we'll discuss what people think about things. Uh, because, you know, it, it, it's outdated, is, is preaching. Uh, it'll put people off. And, and we can do many, many things like that. We can think, well, why don't we do this? Because we'll get more people in. Well, we're doing things the way we do them because that's what is in the Word of God. As far as we are able to see, we are, we are doing things the way that God says. And the way that God says things are done is not the way that man says it, it should be done. They're not the way that the world says it should be done. Otherwise, we're sitting in court and sitting in judgment over what God has said he'll do. God says in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 and chapter 27, he says, Paul says here, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so no one can boast before him. God hasn't chosen a way that looks appealing to the world. God hasn't chosen a way that everyone says, oh, what a well done, God. That's how you should have done it. Because God's going, no, I'm doing it my way. I'm in charge. Your will is not central, God says. Mine is. I decide. I call the shots. If we just go in with the way we think, should be, we think things should be, that is sin. That is sin. You know, sin, people often think, oh, sin. That must be living a really scandalous life. That must be, you know, that must be like, like some of these people, like, I don't know, Tiger Woods, you see, you know, you see him, oh, he looks to be perfect, but actually he was living a scandalous life. That, oh, that's sin, that's awful. Let's all stand in judgment of him. Let's all criticize him when he, when he stands up and let's be cynical about it. I mean, you know, who, who knows what's going on? But we, we're not there sitting in judgment on other people because they're living a scandalous life. That's not what sin is. Well, it is what sin is, but that's not all that sin is. Sin is, is living a life which might be very respected, might be very admired by people. But if it is God-less, if it doesn't have God at the centre, it is sinful. Because if it doesn't have God at the centre, it has yourself at the centre. And to live a life with yourself at the centre, the Bible says, is sin. Some people often say, oh, sin has I in the middle. 
It's a bit cheesy, but it's true. That's what it means. Sin is me, I, in the middle, in the center. That's what sin is. And we see what sin does in this passage, because Adam and Eve were tempted, and they succumbed. Eve ate the fruit, she gave it to Adam. Adam didn't protest. He took it as well. And they rebelled against God. And sin came into the world. And with what result? Well, we see here what result. The first thing that happened, verse 7, the eyes of them both were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Sin makes us less than we were before. It doesn't do what was promised. It doesn't, the enemy will promise us, oh sin, this is going to make you like like God's, it's going to make you greater than you are. It's going to give you all that God had given you and more. No, it doesn't. It makes us less than we are. It gives us less than we had before. The first thing that Adam and Eve realize is that they were naked. And so they cover themselves up. They now couldn't cope with being totally vulnerable before each other. They couldn't cope with it. Before that point, they were in perfect relationship with each other and with God. Everything was open. Everything was exposed. Their their bodies were exposed, but everything was exposed. Emotionally, they were exposed to each other. They were imperfect. There was no guardedness, but as soon as sin comes in, we have to cover ourselves up. We have to hide ourselves. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be exposed to other people now. So they cover themselves up, and they, they cobble together some fig leaves to do it. And from that point onwards, human relationships have been guarded with each other. There's there's barriers that that have been put up. There's coverings. We might not be putting, we might not be clothing ourselves in fig leaves, but, but I tell you, from that moment on, all of life, all of interaction with people is fig leaves. We just put the walls up. People talk about putting masks up. It's a nicer way of saying you wouldn't say I'd put putting a fig leaf up, would you, I suppose? But, but that's what it amounts to. You know, we, we cover up the things. We're guarded. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be totally intimate with each other. Even husbands and wives, it's a major battle to be totally unguarded and intimate with each other. Life is fig leaves. And then they quickly... God is walking in the garden, so they hide. They hide from him. Up until then, he's, he's, God's, probably been, been, God's probably been walking about in the garden, you know, spending time with them, intimate time with them. Each day, God is walking in the garden. But now, now Adam and Eve don't want to be with God. They don't want to be exposed to God. So, so what do they do? They hide. They hide from God behind a tree. Ooh, that's going to work. Hide behind. You know, <laughs> those of you who've got kids, I don't know if you do. Our, our kids do this all the time. They hear, they hear me coming downstairs, and uh, they're in the lounge or something. And uh, they, maybe they haven't done anything wrong, but maybe they have. But, but they're like, oh, Daddy's coming, Daddy's coming. Quick, hide. And it's like, and you hear this scampering behind the sofa or behind the chair. And, and you, you walk in, and they're like, oh, where's Ellie? Where's Joshua? You know, they've gone. They're hiding. They're hiding behind a chair. It's like, I know where you are. <laughs> you can kind of play along. 
especially if you've done something wrong. It's like, oh, no. Oh, mummy's coming. Hide. Quick. Put those matches away. <laughs> it's a bit foolish, isn't it? You know, kids do it. Adam and Eve did it. They hid from God behind a tree. What's that about? God's, God's coming down. Where are you? He knows where they are. He's not, he's not fooled. <laughs> he's not fooled. God isn't fooled. We, we hide. They should have run to him in repentance. Oh, man, we've messed up. God, you told us not to do this. We're sorry. They don't do that. They hide. And we laugh, but we do it. We do it. We hide from God. We think we can get away with things. Oh, no one's looking. No one knows. We can just look at this website. That's all right. No one's about. God, we're hiding from God in our, in our office, <laughs> in our house. Yeah, God won't see you. Of course he sees you. God sees everything. God knows our intimate thoughts. He knows everything about us. But yet we pretend that he doesn't. We hide. We're hiding from God. And we should be running to him in repentance. But sin produces in us a kind of allergic reaction to God's purity. We become hostile to his lordship. We don't want him in our lives anymore. We can't tolerate his demands of righteousness. So we hide in guilt and fear. You know, maybe we think, oh, you know, I've got into this stuff. I don't know, I shouldn't have got into it. So I, I, I can't face coming to church anymore. I can't, I can't go to group anymore because I know what's going on. So you don't go. So you're hiding away. I can't face it. I can't face being with Christians. I can't face worshipping God because there's a barrier there now. There's this reaction because God is pure and holy and I know I'm not. So I'm going to hide. I'm going to hide away. That will make it all right. We're fearful. We're guilty. And this freedom and control which Adam and Eve were seeking has left them shocked and fearful and self-absorbed and ashamed. They're alienated from God. That's what sin does. Sin never develops and matures. It always wounds and weakens us. It doesn't make us more. It always makes us less in every way. But we see here, even at this point in this story, that God is still in charge. He's not on the back foot. Okay, so he seeks them out. Where are you? Like I said, it's a rhetorical question. He knows where they are. Psalm 139 tells us we cannot hide from God's presence anywhere. You know, Adam and Eve certainly weren't hiding from God in the garden. And so they, so they come out and they start, they start to they lay blame, don't they, on others. So Adam... Adam blames others. That's what we do, isn't it? We don't take responsibility. We blame other people. Oh, it's not my fault. That's, that, it's not my fault, probably, sums up, you know, the response of people in the, in, in the world, doesn't it? It's not my fault. Oh, it was how I was brought up. Oh, it was, um, it was someone else. They got me into doing it. Oh, well, yeah, this happened. It's not my fault. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But that's what Adam was doing. Adam's like, it wasn't my fault. Adam, Adam dares to say this to God. This is, this is quite risky. 
mean, God is very gracious and merciful at this point. But Adam's like, well, it's the, it's the woman. He blames Eve. It's the, he doesn't just blame Eve. He blames God. The woman you put here. The woman you gave me. I didn't ask for her. Do you remember? I was doing all right with you before. We were getting on fine, God. Then you put this woman here. And, you know, she, she must have been defective in some way. Maybe she's a beta version. I don't know. We, you know let's, for those who are into computers. But, you know, you need to get it right next time, God. You know, it's all her fault. Having a go at God. It's God's fault. It's God's fault, is it? No, it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. We do it today. Oh, I married the wrong woman. I married the wrong woman. That's what it was. If only I'd married the right woman. If only you'd given me the right wife, the right husband. Then we'd have been got, got on fine. And now I've got this husband or this wife. And they're making me do these things. You know, I wouldn't be like this if it wasn't for them. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Blaming others. Blaming God. Amazing. But God pronounces judgment. God is in charge. First of all, he pronounces judgment on the serpent. The serpent here is very, very quiet. He's been full of words before. You know, God says this and God won't. As soon as God's on the scene, the serpent doesn't say a word. And God is pronouncing judgment on him. And there's no way of repentance for him. You know, cursed are you. You will crawl on your belly. I will put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's a hint there. We'll come on to this in a second. There's a hint there of what's going to happen later on. Because God is speaking to the enemy here. So he pronounces judgment on the serpent. You know, Satan can only do so much. He can only do what God allows him to do. But he also pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve, and he casts them out of the garden. He casts them out of the garden, he says, because they now have knowledge of good and evil. And they, and they can't be allowed to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Now, that is gracious of God. You think, why? Why is that gracious, to cast them out of the garden now? Well, because God doesn't want them to live in sin. They're not now in a perfect state. They're not now in the state they were. So they now they've got this spoiled relationship with God, spoiled relationship with each other. There's guilt, there's there's anger towards each other, there's there's self-blaming, they're blaming each other. All of this, they're having a go at God. And if they eat from the tree of life in the garden, then they live in that state forever. It never changes. God didn't want that. Better to die. Better to go and be cast out and for God to work another way through to redeem the situation, which is exactly what God did. He cast them out because they now have a knowledge of good and evil. It's worth remembering this when we are tempted to believe the lies of the enemy. When people say to us, you know, how do you know? How do you know something is bad unless you've tried it? You know, you need to try things for yourself. You can't just pronounce judgment and say, oh, you know, this is bad and this is wrong and this is wrong. You've never tried it yourself. You need to try it. You need to see for yourself if it's wrong. No, you don't. No, you don't. Why do we need to try things to know they are wrong? Adam and Eve tried it. They found out it was wrong. Big time. God does intend us to have a knowledge of sin. But not a knowledge of sin by 
entering into it. A knowledge of sin by having our eyes open to it. By knowing God intimately and knowing sin for what it really is. You know, I don't need to try heroin to know what it does to people. I don't need to try it to work out that it's destructive. We don't need to get involved in sin just to find out what it really is like. God tells us what it's like. God wants to open our eyes up to it. But like I said, in all of this, there's God's mercy and provision and ultimately the promise of renewal. Adam and Eve are cast out. But before casting them out, God makes them garments of skin to protect them. Verse 21. Adam and Eve just cobbled themselves together some fig leaves and some sort of inadequate loincloths. God is saying, no, I'm going to equip you for the world out there. He, he makes them garments of skin to protect them. And they're driven out. But they're not driven out of God's presence permanently. You know, this is, if you, if you read this story, you'd think, well, that's it. That's it. They're totally separate from God. But no. Even in chapter 4, you know, Abel and Cain, uh, uh, the brothers, and Abel is bringing some of his portions, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks, and he's worshipping God, and God is looking in favour on him. And then on from there, you've got Noah and Abraham and others, all the way through the Bible. God isn't still in the garden. God cast them out. But he went out with them. He wasn't totally separate from them. God still wanted a people. God was renewing it. God was bringing it back around to how he wanted it. He always intended to bring humans back to him. And in Romans chapter 5, and we're not going to go into this because um, that's where Arnold's preaching from at the moment, and uh, he'll be onto this very soon. But Romans chapter 5 explains how this affected us. You know, we are born into Adam. Romans chapter 5 from verse 12 onwards. It says, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. Um, and it goes on. We are born into Adam's sin. We are born into this sin of Adam. Death doesn't come to us because we sin personally. It's not as though we're, you know, we're born okay and perfect until we do something wrong. We're born in Adam. We're born into Adam's sin. Death has come because of what he did. We can't do anything about it. God could, and he did. And he hints at it in the curse on the serpent, that the promise that Eve's offspring will finally crush his head. Satan will continue to destroy the world, but God, God would win out in, in, at the end of the day. Ultimately, the fight would be won. The fight would be won by God sending his son, born of Mary, who was a daughter of Eve, to fight on our behalf. In 1 Corinthians 40, 15 and verse 45, Paul calls him the second Adam. We've had the first Adam, and now we have the second Adam. The first Adam failed, but the second Adam succeeded. The second Adam came and lived a perfect life. He carried on, after his baptism, he carried on, where the first Adam left off, in the wilderness. He went out into the wilderness. And Satan came and took off, took on, carried on from where he was at and started tempting him and attacking Jesus. Just in the same way that he had with Adam. What does he tempt him with? He tempts him with food. Just the same. Just the same. With Adam, it was an apple or a fruit. With, with Jesus, it was bread. 
And he tempts him. But Jesus doesn't give in. Jesus doesn't stand by silently like the first Adam did. Jesus speaks out and speaks the truth of God and quotes scripture. You can see all this in in Luke's gospel. And Satan continued to tempt Jesus, but Jesus did not give in to temptation all the way through his life. He was tempted, Jesus, in every way, just as we are, yet he remained without sin. So Satan, in the end, decides, well, that's the only thing that I can do is kill this Jesus. That's the only way that I can do it. And he tries to kill Jesus. And we read in Luke chapter 22 that he enters into Judas. Luke chapter 22, um, verse 3. It says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guards and discussed how he might betray Jesus. And just as the scriptures um, predicted, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, by the kiss of a friend. Satan's thinking he's got his way. He's entering into Judas. He's going to defeat Jesus once and for all. And yes, Jesus did go and he was arrested and he was betrayed and handed over and he was unjustly murdered and he died but Colossians and chapter 2 tells us that God turned this whole thing around and, and that Jesus died for the sins of the world he died to take on board the sins that we had been born into he was punished in our place, so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might come into a new life with God. And it was in this moment that the enemy thought he had won the day and defeated the Son of Man, that God would have his greatest victory. Colossians 2 and verse 13 um, says, When you were dead in your sins and and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. At that moment, on the cross, and in the resurrection of Jesus, he triumphed over the powers of darkness. He triumphed over the, uh, the powers and authorities. He triumphed over Satan. And he made a public spectacle of them. It was in that very moment that Christ came and crushed Satan's head. And actually, he'll finally defeat him when he returns in glory. And he will finally be no more. Finally defeated. And have no power. And there's this, I don't know if you've seen the film, The Passion of the Christ... But there's a scene in that where Jesus dies. And all the way around, Satan has been in this, lurking in the background, trying to defeat Jesus. And at the moment, I think it is when Jesus dies on the cross, Satan is aware. As Jesus proclaims, it is finished. It is finished. Satan looks up and cries out, knowing that in that moment, when he thought he was the victor, that was the moment of his defeat. That was the moment of his defeat. Satan is defeated and will be finished off. Yeah, he's got power now. He still roams around the earth now, trying to tempt people, trying to have his own way, trying to lead people away from God. But when Jesus Christ returns in power, he will be finally defeated. As one man's act of rebellion 
brought sin and death into the world. It was another man's self-sacrifice that brought the gift of justification and life into a guilty, dying world. And now there's a way out. Now there's a way out of the old humanity and into this new humanity in Jesus Christ. It's a way of faith in him. In following the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. All it takes is repentance. All it takes is a turning away from the ways of the first Adam and following in the ways of the second Adam. You know, we couldn't do that before. We were absolutely lost in Adam's sin. But now there is a way. Now there is a way. Because God has made a way. And he always intended it, right through Genesis 3. And the question is now, well, where are you? Where are you? Because God is calling people to a response. God is calling people to leave that old way. That way that we were born into. And and to follow in the way of righteousness. To follow a loving saviour. To leave the, the ways of sin and death and despair, which only lead to hell, the road to hell. And to turn into a road towards heaven. A living relationship with Father God. You know, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground in this. We are either a friend of God or we are a friend of Satan. We're either on the road to heaven or we're on the road to hell. We're either living forgiveness and joy or we're living unforgiveness and misery and guilt. We either believe the truth or we're believing in lies. We're either hiding from God or we're running to him in repentance and saying, I I want to follow you. There's There's no other way. Those are the two ways that we go. You say, oh, I'm just, I'm just thinking about it. I'm not sure. I need to think about it for a while. Well, think about it for a while, but, but that's where you are. At the moment, if you are not following Jesus, if you have not turned to him in repentance, you are following the way of Satan. And it leads to hell. That's what the word of God says. Those of us who are following him, those of us who are following God, we can come and celebrate. And know the joy that our God is the God who saves. Our God is the one who rescued us. Even in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled, God was in control. God was in charge. He had a plan to redeem us and rescue us. He always had a plan. He always followed it through. And he will always reign. And he will return one day. And we will know him fully forever. Let's pray.